church. Welcome to, thank you, welcome to the first Sunday of September. Can you believe that's already here? School, <laughs> some, I heard like a disgruntled school student. Yes, I can believe it. <laughs> Schools have started back, more or less. Labor Day weekend is sadly coming to an end, and everywhere I look, pumpkin spice. All of that together tells us the vacation mode of summer is sadly coming to an end, and a more normal rhythm of life that we call fall is beginning. And of course, technically, fall doesn't start till later this month, but for all intents and purposes, fall is here. And, and what I want to argue is that's not necessarily all bad. I think some of us sometimes think a perpetual summer would be just a beautiful way to live the rest of our lives, but I would argue that's probably not really the case. I don't think we would enjoy that as much as we think. When, when I think about that, it actually, it reminded me when I was putting this together of the old 90s sitcom Full House and their theme song. Some of you may be familiar with it. It begins with whatever happened to predictability, the milkman, the paper boy, the Somebody knows it, the evening TV. <laughs> the point behind saying all that is we long for predictability, I think, as humans in general, routine and structure. We may not think that we do, but ultimately we thrive under those kinds of things, and fall is really like a return to that. And that holds true not only for your individual lives at home or work or school, uh, but also for our corporate life as a church. So because we are returning to this normal rhythm of church life, we've had a great summer, done a lot of great things, but now that we're returning to this normal rhythm of church life, we decided this would be a really fitting time to remind us all about our vision as a church. In other words, to answer the question, why do we have the routines and structures that we have here at Severn Covenant Church? And you might think that the obvious answer would just be to point to the Bible and say, read it. This is why we do what we do. And of course, of course, that's true. The question is, well, what does that mean? How could I communicate all of that quickly and easily for somebody especially new to remember and to figure out what we're all about? If you think about it, even Jesus Christ, when he, when he stood before his hometown synagogue, these were the people he'd grown up with, the people would probably be the most um, skeptical of what he was coming to do. When he stood before them, he didn't just say, hey, I'm here to do God's will. He would say that in other places. But when he stood before them, he pulled out the scroll of Isaiah, and we're told that he specifically found this place and quoted these words to describe his own vision and mission. Here's what he said. I just want to quote it to you, and I'm going to make a point with it. Jesus said, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.'" So what Jesus is saying there is, I came here, I became human, I exist to proclaim, heal, and set free. That's a vision statement. It gave the people in front of him a quick, understandable, memorable way of understanding his identity and his purpose, and it gave them a very clear indication of the kinds of things he was about to do and the kinds of things he was not going to do. And that's exactly why we have a vision statement as a church. In his book, Start With the Wise, um, leadership guru Simon Sinek explains the purpose of vision statements by contrasting American car manufacturers with Japanese car manufacturers. And here, here's what he said. He said, in the American factories, oftentimes near the end of the assembly process, the workers have to use rubber mallets to basically force the doors to go into place. But in the Japanese car factories, now you know why your door won't shut all the time. That's, you're welcome. In Japanese car factories, they take extra time at the beginning 
to design the doors to fit perfectly at the end. And you can probably see where he's going with this. When you begin with the end in mind, it makes all the different pieces fit together rather than having to force them to fit together. And at Severn Covenant Church, that's how we seek to operate. We don't just come up with programs and events and processes and then hope they'll fit together. We'll just force them to fit together. We start with our vision. We start with the end or the goal in mind, and then we create programs and events and processes that fit that vision. And because they fit the vision, they all fit together. That's why, speaking of our fall routine, that's why we're going to be doing throughout this fall normal weekly Sunday morning gatherings. We'll have weekly small groups. We'll have Saturday serve projects. And you've been hearing us talk about this the last couple weeks. We've got these new opportunities, this new rhythm called these monthly renew classes. None of those things compete with each other. They don't have to be hammered together. None of them compete with each other. They complement each other each other, because from the beginning, they were designed to fit with our vision. So I've talked a lot about our vision. I've left you in anticipation for long enough. The real question is, what is this grand vision that you speak of? We talk about it a lot around here. It's on a gigantic sign behind me, but for the sake of dramatic effect, let me just say it. We exist to see lives transformed by Jesus. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard us say that before. You might imagine this vision as a chair or a stool that our church rests on. It holds us up. But the question is, well, what holds the vision up? Like, what does this vision actually look like in practice? How do we actually go about doing it? And, and so now you might imagine that our vision as a stool has three legs. We exist to see lives transformed by Jesus. That's the vision. By helping people grow in their love for God, grow in their relationships with other believers, and serve others both inside and outside the church. Those are the three legs. Love God, grow together, serve the community. If you remove any one of those legs, the vision gets wobbly, the church gets wobbly, because it just won't work without any one of those. So I say all of that to introduce you to our next little mini-series. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be in this series called Lives Transformed by Jesus, where we're going to walk through each of those three legs of our vision, showing you how they're biblical and what they actually mean. And our heart behind doing this is really simple. The church is not an institution or a building. The church is us. It's you and I, the body of Jesus' followers committed to Him and committed to one another. So when we, when we begin to understand why the church exists, what we're really doing is understanding why you and I exist, why we do what we do together as this specific local body of believers, and how each one of us can play a vital part in actually seeing the vision come to pass. So today, I'm going to be looking at that first leg of the vision. We exist to see lives transformed by Jesus by helping people develop their love for God. And to explain what that means and how that works, we're going to be hanging out in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. So I'll go ahead and read that to you here on the front end. We're in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God 
in true righteousness and holiness. What I want to do now is just spend the rest of our time digging into those verses and showing you how they teach us three important truths that don't, don't just happen to conveniently match our vision. Those truths are our vision. The Bible gave us our vision. We didn't make it up. God did. So I'll go ahead and give you these three truths on the front end, then we'll walk through each one individually. Number one, this passage shows us Jesus came to transform lives. Number two, transformation happens through learning. And then lastly, the goal of learning is love. So let's begin with that first point. Jesus came to transform lives. If you were to ask people in general, why did Jesus come to earth? You would get dozens of different answers, each with like varying degrees of truth. If you were to ask, I think, committed followers of Jesus who have been in this thing for a while, you'd probably get some variation of Jesus came to save us from our sins. I'm sure you've heard people say that before. I'm saved. Are you saved? And, and if you press a little bit on that and ask, well, what does that mean? Typically, the response you would get is, well, Jesus came to save us in the sense of forgive us to save us from the consequences of our sin, <coughs> excuse me, at some point in the future. And, and that is 100% a biblically accurate way of thinking about what Jesus came here to do. It's not wrong. What I would argue is it's just incomplete. If you look over the entire New Testament, the salvation that Jesus came to bring isn't just a saving of our, from, our, from our consequences of sin at some point in the future, it is a saving from the power of sin right now in our daily lives. This salvation, what that means, is ultimately a transformation. And that idea is all over the New Testament, including the passage we're looking at today. So look with me at Ephesians 4, 17, and Paul is going to get to this idea. And let me take a drink of water because I have a tickle in my throat. All right. Verse 17. Now this I say, <clears throat> and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now notice what Paul is specifically commanding here. This is one out of six times that he uses the verb walk in this letter. And every time he uses it, it's obvious from the context, he's referring to the way that we live, to our actual behaviors. So what he's saying to these Ephesian Christians is now that you're a follower of Jesus, it's not enough for you to just say, I believe, like in, in my heart, in my mind. You must actually start living differently. You can no longer, he says, live and behave the way you used to as a person who didn't follow Jesus, whom he here calls Gentiles. So there's a transformation that must happen. But, but I want you to not misunderstand what he's saying. What he's not saying is, hey, now you're a guest in Jesus' house. You're hoping not to get kicked out, so clean yourself up. Try to look the part by making a nice suit of clothes out of those rags you're wearing. That's not Christian transformation. Real Christian transformation is if you've had a real encounter with the risen Jesus and you have his real spirit living in you, then you are not just simply a guest in his house on a probationary trial status, having to live out of the suitcase you brought with you. You are a fully adopted and secure child of the king, and he has given you a brand new wardrobe of clothes to put on. That's why right here in Ephesians 4 in verses 22 and 24, Paul says to them, put off the old self and put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Jesus created a new self for you, a new identity. You don't have to change yourself, but he says now you have to put it on. You have to wear it. If we go back to his walking metaphor, what he's saying is, hey, Jesus put you on the path. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus gave you a new tracksuit, and he gave you new tennis shoes, and he gave you whatever else you need, a bag full of water and snacks. But now, you actually have to put one foot in front of the other and walk the path. That's Christian transformation. However, I think there's still the potential for misunderstanding here. You might hear all that and think, are are you saying that when we place our faith in Jesus, he starts our transformation but the rest is completely up to me because that's almost what it sounds like. He put you on the path, now you walk it. So let me clarify. There is obviously effort required here on our part. I think sometimes uh, in our church culture, because we so strongly and rightly believe in God's free grace, salvation's a gift, we can't earn it. Because of that, we, we tend to uh, shy away from telling people there's effort involved, but you just can't miss it here. We are very clearly commanded to walk differently than we used to. We are very clearly commanded to put off something, put on something. But here's the key. Behind our decisive real actions are God's decisive action on our behalf. And we actually see that right here in this passage. It kind of comes and goes really quickly. It's easy to miss, but let me point it out to you. In between the two verses where Paul says, put off and put on, he adds in a little phrase In verse 23, we'll talk more about it in a second, but let me just point it out. In verse 23, he says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Notice he doesn't say, renew the spirit of your minds. That's not what he says. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's the difference between getting a letter in the mail that says, you need to renew your driver's license by September the 30th, or getting a letter in the mail that says, your driver's license will be renewed on September the 30th. One is something you have to do. The other is something that's done for you or to you. And and that's what Paul is saying here. The reason he throws that little verse in, in between that put off and put on command, is because he knows that these people, the only way they're going to have any hope of actually obeying those commands and actually walking after Christ with any real consistency and sincerity, the only way they're going to be able to do that is if God in Christ enables them by renewing their minds for them. I say all that to make this abundantly clear. Jesus is the one who transforms people's lives from beginning to end, but he never does it by bypassing our will or our effort. He does it by empowering those things. This is why Severn Covenant's vision statement uses the very specific language that it does. When when this was first put together, it was thought out very precisely. Our church exists to see lives transformed. Not just forgiven, of course that's true. Not just saved from hell, of course that's true. Bigger and more complete than that, lives transformed and transformed by Jesus. We don't accomplish that transformation. We just facilitate it. We provide a place and a context for it to happen, but only Jesus can do it. And that brings us logically to a next question. If that's true, how then do we as a church actually facilitate and provide a place for that transformation to happen. And that brings us to our next big truth this morning. Transformation happens through learning. I imagine most of what we've said so far this morning is familiar territory for many of you, and that's exactly what we want. That's a good thing. We didn't create a vision just to slap it on the website and never talk about it. It really really does define who we are, what we do, so we spend a lot of time talking about it. So I don't think it's surprising to anybody to go to Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 and discover that there's a wrong way for Christians to live and there's a right way for Christians to live. Don't think that's surprising. What may be more surprising is what Paul points out here as the root power 
behind those ways of living. So let me point it out to you. Look again, Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So we just established that's referring to behavior, to our lives that we live. Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. So what Paul is doing here is he's piling up word after word after word to make a very clear point. Walking the wrong path is directly rooted in thinking and believing the wrong things. And maybe you've never really considered that to any, you know, depth in your own spiritual life, but we all know this in much more mundane areas of life. I'll just share with you a simple story to point that out. I was talking to one of our fellow church members just last weekend, and he was telling me about how their family first came to move to Maryland from Okinawa, Japan. They're a military family, and the military brought them here on a flight, not to BWI, which would have been super convenient, but to Dulles Airport, very late at night. So, so they fly into Dulles. They get there. They don't have a car, of course. They, they're coming from Japan. So the military loans them a van, and they're tired, and it's late. So they've got the address to this house they've never been to before. And so they just plug it into the van's GPS. That's going to be the simplest thing to do, and they follow the map. Unfortunately, as they began to follow the map, it took them off the exit reserved for NSA employees. Anybody ever done that? But I hear some groans. You've either heard stories, you've done this yourself. Not a fun thing to do. So obviously, immediately, it's very late at night. The car was promptly stopped. Questions were asked. The car was searched. There's kids in the back. Needless to say, this was not the uh, welcome to Maryland moment that they had hoped for. The question is, why did that happen? And we all know why that happened. They took the wrong path and ended up at the wrong place because they believed in the GPS data provided by their map because they didn't know they were ignorant of the fact that the van's GPS system hadn't been updated in years. So in their minds, they thought the route's accurate, the map's going to get us home, so they drove down the wrong path. And of course, that's a metaphor for all the bigger areas of our lives. The way we live, the way we behave is ultimately determined by the truths or the lies that we think and believe. So if the wrong way of living is rooted in our minds, which we just discovered, you would expect then the solution to also be directed towards our minds. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says here. We mentioned it just a minute ago. Now we're going to focus on it for just a minute. Remember, sandwiched in between those put off and put on commands, in verse 23, Paul says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. If the reason we walk the wrong path is because of the futility of our minds, then it makes perfect sense now that the way we're transformed to walk the right path is by being renewed in our minds. The question is, well, what in the world does that actually mean? If you were here a few weeks ago, you may or may not remember, I preached another sermon. Uh, that time we were in Colossians, another letter of Paul's, and we talked about the renewal of your mind. That's a very popular and important theme in Paul's writings. And back in that sermon, I defined the renewal of our mind by comparing it to the modern-day psychological practice of cognitive behavioral therapy. So what I want to do is just quote to you the end of that definition I used during that teaching, but I want to go somewhere with it. So this comes straight from the American Psychological Association. Cognitive behavioral therapy treatment usually involves efforts to change thinking patterns. These strategies might include learning to recognize one's distortions in thinking that are creating problems 
and then to reevaluate them in light of reality. That is exactly what it looks like to have our minds renewed. We must recognize distortions in our thinking, those are the lies, and then reevaluate them in light of reality. That's the truth. How does that happen? The definition actually told us by learning. The renewal of our minds, which leads to transformed behavior, happens through the right learning. And that's not just a psychological idea. The Apostle Paul makes that very explicit in this passage, just a few verses before he talks about the renewal of our minds. Listen to verses 20 through 21. Here is how and where the renewal of our minds takes place. Paul says, but that is not the way. Remember, he's talking about the way that the Gentiles live, the wrong way to live. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. So how did these Ephesian Christians come to first have their minds renewed and their lives transformed? They learned, they heard, they were taught. I want to quote to you the eminent New Testament scholar John Stott and the way he explained these verses. He does it way better than I can. Here's what he said. He said, over against heathen hardness, darkness, and recklessness, Paul sets a whole process of Christian moral education. He uses three parallel expressions which center on three verbs. First, you learned Christ. Secondly, you heard Him. Thirdly, you were taught in Him. These are remarkable expressions, John Stott says. They evoke the image of a school and refer to the essential religious instruction which Paul assumes indeed knows that they've had. So that brings us back to the question that kind of started us down this path. How does the church facilitate the transformation that only Jesus can perform? And the primary answer given here is through teaching and learning. Now, caveat, of course, I'm not saying that that's the only way transformation happens. If you come back next week and the next week, David and Ryan are going to talk about how transformation happens in the context of community, in the context of serving other people. But learning is one of the major ways that it happens and happens to be the major way Paul is talking about in this passage. But we all know not just any kind of learning, not all kinds of learning actually lead to real positive change. All of us have experienced, or we at least probably know somebody who has experienced, lots of learning, but it hasn't changed them for the better. Oftentimes, it has changed them for the worse. So, the question is then, well, what's the difference? What kind of learning really does lead to the kind of transformation that is good for us? What's the criteria? And we actually find it right here in verses 20 through 21 in those three phrases that we just read from the Apostle Paul. These are the three pieces of criteria that show us what true Christian learning should look like if it's going to bring about real transformation. So, let me just walk you through each three of these. I'll start with the first phrase and the last phrase, and we'll come back to that one in the middle. So, first, in verse 20, Paul says to them that they learned Christ. What that means is Jesus must be the primary content of our learning. Jesus Himself did not say, I bring you the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. So, if we want to have our minds renewed in order to be transformed, then we must learn Jesus Himself, who He is and what He's accomplished for us. He is God who became man so that He could die and rise again to set us free both from the consequences and the power of sin in our lives and be reconciled to God. That is what we call the gospel. It is the good news about 
Jesus. And without that, there is no transformation. So the first thing that our learning must have, it must have Jesus as the content of our learning. That's the first thing. Second, if we go down to verse 21, these Ephesian Christians are told that they were also taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, if you were reading that, at first glance, you might think, well, Paul's just kind of repeating himself here. But I don't think that's the case. The first phrase really told us that we need to be taught Jesus Himself, but now this says we need to be taught the truth as it's in Jesus. And, and one way to kind of differentiate those two in your mind is, is the first one is telling us Jesus must be the content of our learning. This is telling us Jesus must be the context in which all learning of truth happens. And if you're still scratching your head saying, I don't get the difference there, which, fair enough, I, I think the easier way to see it is to point you to a different passage that Paul wrote, Colossians 2, 3, and look at what he says there. He says, in whom, he's talking about Christ, in Christ, that's the same phrase, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What he's saying there is, is even if there is some truth that is not directly connected to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, even if you can't find that truth explicitly written in the gospel accounts, all truth, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge find their origin and their fulfillment, their beginning and their end in Jesus. You actually see us kind of prove that point every once in a while on a Sunday morning. Sometimes we will stand up here and preach truths from the Old Testament of the Bible. Those books were written hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus became a human. So Jesus isn't explicitly on those pages as a human. And yet, when we preach those truths, we always point them to Jesus because they find their origin and their fulfillment in Him. That's one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is there are authors that I'm sure you've heard of. We've quoted them a few times up here, like J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. They're famous for writing Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia. They said in their own words that non-Christian mythologies often moved them, not because they actually believed the events and the characters were real. They did not. But because many of the themes in those stories of love and sacrifice and friendship and courage were pointing them to the truth as found in Jesus. Understanding that was actually one of the final steps in C.S. Lewis's journey from atheism to Christianity. The point being, all truth points us to Jesus, and therefore all truth must be learned in the context of Jesus in order to be truly transformative. So Jesus is content, Jesus is context. But lastly, in the middle of those two statements, Paul says that these Ephesian Christians have heard about Jesus. That little preposition about, that's not in the original Greek. This should literally say they heard Jesus. So now Jesus isn't just content, He's not just context, He's also the communicator of the learning. He Himself is the teacher. And I, I left this till last because I think it's the most vital. In order for real transformation to happen, we must ultimately learn from Jesus Himself. Now, obvious question, does that mean we should just do away with all other teachers, like fire me and Ryan and David on the spot. We'll sit here quietly, pray for divine revelation. Answer, no. Did somebody say all? <laughs> I heard an all. I'm not even going to look in that direction. You would, you would obviously think I'm going to say no. Let me show you why the Bible says no. Chapter, same chapter, Ephesians 4. Let's just go a few verses before where we've been hanging out. Verses 11 through 12. 
we read this. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what that means is Jesus, who Paul just told us should really be our teacher, is also the one who gives us other teachers. So what that means then is Jesus teaches us through those teachers. That's very often how he does it. He empowers and enables them by his spirit to teach his truths. Now, that doesn't mean that Ryan and David and I are infallible. You hang out with us for a few seconds, you will realize just how fallible we are. But it does mean two things. Here's two, two implications of this. Number one, we don't stand up here and seek to give you our truth. That's an oxymoron. That's illogical. Truth cannot be relative to the individual and still be truth. That makes zero sense. What we do is we seek to stand up here and give you the truth as revealed in and by Jesus. That's why we so strongly believe in explaining the Bible and what it says rather than using the Bible just to prove what we want to say. That's the first implication. The second implication I think is even more important. No amount of truth that we stand up here and proclaim will ultimately transform you if Jesus himself by his Spirit isn't taking these teachings and making them bear fruit in your heart and mind. To borrow a different metaphor from the Apostle Paul, we can stand up here all day and sling seed and water the soil, but only God can make it grow. So submitting ourselves then to true Christian learning with Jesus as content, context, and communicator, that is what leads to true Christian transformation. That's why we devote so much time every Sunday to teaching the Bible in a Christ-saturated, gospel-centered way. That's also why we're about to launch these new monthly renew classes starting in September to provide even more opportunities to renew our minds for learning the essentials of the Christian faith and practice. But having said all of that, you might now be wondering, how can I be sure that that kind of transformative learning is really happening in my life? How can I be sure I'm really learning the truth about Jesus and in Jesus and from Jesus? What does that transformation actually look like? And that brings us to our final major idea today. The goal of learning is love. So up to this point, we've been spending all of our time pretty much in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to come back to it. But just for a second, I want to jump over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. This is still the Apostle Paul. This time he's writing a letter to an individual named Timothy instead of an entire church. I'm going to read these verses, and I'll just pause along the way to explain a few things. And I think you're going to, you're going to see pretty quickly how, how this connects to Ephesians 4. So here's what it says. As I, Paul, urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So Paul sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus, the same church to whom Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. So already you see the connections. The question is, why did he send them there? He gives us the answer. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. So Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to deal with issues of learning, what we've been talking about for the past 10 minutes or so. And what was the issue there? Certain people were teaching different doctrines, what Paul calls myths and genealogies. This was not real Christian learning where Jesus Christ was content, context, communicator. This is wrong learning. Look at what it led to. Look at what wrong learning leads to. It says, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The Greek word there for speculations refers to questionings, to debates, to matters of controversy. Here's a great diagnostic tool for determining whether or not you're really learning the right doctrine in the right way. If your learning is regularly leading you to focus less on the essential truths and practices of Christianity and focus more on disagreements and arguments over non-essential issues, then something about your learning is flawed. Now, let me make that more concrete by by looking into my own heart and, and kind of looking at what I've heard before. If you find yourself thinking about, talking about, and arguing about the identity of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, or the age of the earth, or angels and demons, more than, now notice what I said and didn't say. I didn't say you can't talk about those things. I just spent last weekend talking about the the theological implications of aliens with some friends. So, of course, fine. It's fine if you want to talk about those things. But if you are moved by and fascinated by and focus on all those things, more than you think about and talk about and and are moved by Jesus' death and resurrection and glorious return and forgiveness of sins, then your learning is Flawed, because the one lead to speculations, shaky ground where you're never stable, and the other leads to solid reality. So that then begs the question, well, if that's what wrong learning leads to, what does right learning lead to? And verse 5 gives us the answer. The aim of our charge. Remember the charge that Paul gave to Timothy is to make sure people are are teaching the right stuff. So, So what's the right kind of learning? What's the aim? It's love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's why I said the goal of learning is love. Love is what a transformed life looks like. And you'll notice here in verse 5, Paul doesn't specify the object of our love. He doesn't tell us who to love, and that's on purpose. When you have your mind truly renewed by Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered learning, it will inevitably cause you to love God, love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and love your neighbors outside the faith. Because think about what you're ultimately learning. Go back to Ephesians 4.20. We are learning Christ Himself. Real Christian learning is not simply the rote memorization of bare facts. It's not simply the analysis of cold logic. It is ultimately learning to know a person. And who is this person? Think about this for a second. What is Jesus really like? Paul himself tells us just one chapter before where our main passage has been today. We've been in Ephesians 4, just one chapter before that, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, Paul prays this beautiful prayer for the Ephesian Christians. And in the midst of it, he tells us what Jesus is really like. Here's what he says. I'm praying that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Jesus is the kind of Savior whose love surpasses knowledge. Paul is literally saying it it can't even be measured. It is infinite in every single direction. We can't outlive or outrun its length. Our sins can't be too many or too great to be covered by its width. We can't sink to depths too low for it to reach us, and we can't imagine the heights to which it will raise us. That's the love of of Jesus. And that's why if we submit to true Christian learning, it will always without fail lead to love because true Christian learning always without fail leads to the person of Jesus who is love made flesh. 
all of that brings us full circle back to that first leg of our vision. This is why we're even doing this teaching today. The reason I'm standing up here teaching about Jesus, the reason why we began our service and we're going to end our service with love songs of worship to God is because we exist to see lives transformed by Jesus by helping people develop their love for God. And what we just saw for the past few minutes is that one of the major ways that we facilitate this transformation of love is through learning. Another way to to say it is that true theology, that's the study of God, true theology always, always leads to doxology, to the praise and glory of the God we love. And if it isn't leading there, then something is missing. But you know as well as I do that the best teachers really don't just limit themselves to being audible. You've had good teachers in school like this. They also give you something visual, physical, tangible. They don't just give you words to hear. They give you objects to to see, to hold, to take in. And that's why we take communion. That's why we're going to take communion this morning. Communion, at least in part, is an object lesson meant to teach us about Jesus and the transformative nature of true love. And to, and to explain how that works, I'm going to lean a little bit on C.S. Lewis here. In his book, Till We Have Faces, he tells the story of a woman named Orwal who lives in a fictional pre-Christian kingdom where the people believe in a mysterious God who lives on the mountain. Some of the people believe that this God is like a husband who loves those who come to him, Others believe he's more like a monster who will devour those who come to him. The village priest says that perhaps the loving and the devouring are the same thing. And this makes Orwell, that thought makes Orwell hate this mysterious God that she doesn't understand. But what you find, ironically, over the course of the story, what she discovers is that she was the one whose flawed love devoured the people that she cared about the most. And she sees this most clearly in the way that she treated her sister, Psyche. Near the end of the book, she actually gets this opportunity to be almost in like a courtroom where she gets to accuse God. She gets to bring her accusation. She's mad at God for taking her sister away. I want you to listen as her angry accusation against God really becomes an accusation against herself. And you'll see where I'm going with this. Here's what she says. I was my own, and my sister, Psyche, was mine. And no one else had any right to her, talking to God here. Oh, you'll say you took her away into bliss and joy, such as I could never have given her, and I ought to have been glad of it for her sake. Why? What should I care for some horrible new happiness which I hadn't given her and which separated her from me? Do you think I wanted her to be happy that way? It would have been better if I had seen the brute tear her in pieces before my eyes. You stole her to make her happy, did you? Did you ever remember whose the girl was? She was mine. Mine. I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team up. Let me tell you why I'm sharing this story with you. Apart from Jesus Christ, this is going to be uncomfortable. That is so often how we love. I know this hit me when I was reading it. Maybe it hits you, whether it's our spouses or our children, our friends, our mentors, even God, our flawed love is often so possessive and so selfish and cares more for our own happiness than the happiness of the person in front of us. And because of that, that flawed love ends up devouring and destroying the very people we claim to love. And Jesus himself actually experienced this. In John chapter 6, 
after spending hours teaching and, and miraculously feeding thousands of people, Jesus just needed some rest, some quiet time, obviously. So he literally walks across the water to get to the other side of the sea. He's trying to get far away just so he can have a, a few minutes to himself, but we're told that the crowds find him there. And so when they find him, Jesus says to them, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're just trying to use me for what you can get to devour me. But here's the shocking thing. Jesus didn't abandon those crowds. He actually allowed himself to be devoured and be destroyed for them and for us. And that ultimately led him to the cross where his body was broken, symbolized by the bread and communion, and his blood was shed, symbolized by the cup. And what does Jesus call us to do with him and his great sacrifice of love? He calls us to devour him. And if you think that language is too graphic, let me just quote Jesus' own words here. This is John 6, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's the object lesson that we learn in communion. Jesus calls us not just to learn about Him at arm's length, to gaze at, to look at, to talk about Him like He's some work of art or piece of literature. He, he calls us to actually take Him in to allow His love to come inside of us so that He abides in us and us in Him. But here's the major difference between our flawed love and Jesus' true love. When we take Jesus in, He will devour us. In another book, C.S. Lewis describes Jesus in terms of a lion who has swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Jesus' love will devour us. Here's the difference, though. It will not destroy us. His love will eat away little by little all of our false, selfish, destructive loves. He will consume us in order to change us that we might love Him and love others the way that He does. That's why at the very end of this book, Till We Have Faces, Orwell finally gets to see the true God face to face. And when she sees him face to face, she is so transformed that now she speaks to her sister, the same sister that she had so adamantly claimed as mine. But now she says to her, never again will I call you mine, but all there is of me shall be yours. That's what the crucified and risen Jesus can do for you and me if we will receive him and his love. He will transform us to love God and love others, not in a way that simply takes them for ourselves, but that gives ourselves to them. John chapter 6, verse 56. Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. If you haven't already, you can go ahead and take the bread in the cup, and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, our love is often so flawed. It can be even destructive. It ultimately reveals itself to not even be love, but a kind of selfishness. Just thinking about that breaks my heart. But I don't stand up here without hope. I would if it weren't for the fact that you sent your own son Jesus to be devoured on our behalf so he could transform us. And that's what we all need. That's what we remember in communion. He allowed his body to be broken 
and the blood to be spilled so that we could be changed, so that we could love like he loves by receiving his love. So may you change us. May you transform us. May you renew our minds through the power of your spirit and through your word and through teaching. Help us to submit ourselves to those things where we'll find true life and true transformation. Change us for your glory and for the good of others around us. Thank you for your great love displayed in Christ on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended and interceding for us. We love you. We thank you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, church. I hope you enjoy your Labor Day, and I hope to see you again next week.